Uh, as you're probably aware, um, because I try to make it obvious as often as I can, uh, I did graduate from the University of Washington, and they do have a football team at the U. And I'm very happy about that. And I, I coached football for a long time. And college football for me is uh, just an amazing thing. There's not a lot of sports for me as a, a sports fan that that would be my favorite. Something about the band and the smells and the sound of the drums. And uh, I would argue that maybe even uh, a better article of football as football goes. And this is bowl season. The bowls got underway. Eastern kind of had a tough one last night. Uh, there are a couple other bowls that have already gone underway. But the granddaddy of all bowls, in fact, it's, that's the nickname of the bowls, the Rose Bowl. It was one of the earliest bowls, and it's called the granddaddy of all bowls. And the Rose Bowl has an amazing, rich history in college football, not just in 2001 when the Huskies won there the last time. But um, one of the great ones was in 1929, and... Um, Looking around the room, I don't see anybody who would remember that bowl as a, wasn't on TV, uh, first off. But they did have uh, film, real film, of it, and it's kind of notable uh, for a couple incidents. And uh, the Golden Bears of California were hosting Georgia Tech, and it was, uh, it was for the national championship that year. And uh, that's not the story. Uh, the Golden Bears had an amazing guy who played both sides of the ball. He was the center, which is very, very difficult, but he was also the nose guard on defense. So this is a national caliber team where one guy's going both ways, offense and defense, that is a really tough position. And that's not the story. The center, this guy, was an All-American. His name was Roy Regals. And if you're a, a sports fan, as he, Dave's chuckling, Roy Regals went by a nickname, he earned that, and it was Wrong Way Roy, and that is our story. And what happened is uh, this, the, in the middle of the second quarter, uh, no score on the board at that point, uh, there was a fumble, and Roy picked up the ball, and he got bounced around a little bit, and ended up running the wrong way. Turns out, we got a little video of this. So this is Roy Regals uh, streaking to what he thought was his end zone, but in fact was going towards the other end zone. Here's what it looked like. In celebration of the 100th Rose Bowl game, a memory. The most famous play by a center in Rose Bowl history led to defeat for his team. In the 1929 game, Cal's Roy Regals recovered a fumble and ran 65 yards the wrong way before a teammate wrestled him to the ground at the one. A blocked punt led to a safety, an 8-7 Georgia Tech win, and a dubious place in history for Roy Regas. The 100th Rose Bowl game on ESPN. He wasn't the only person to do that, it turns out. Professionals do this. Minnesota Vikings. 30-yard line, Kilmer driving for the first down, loses the football. It's picked up by Jim Marshall, who's running the wrong way. I watched the guy come up and give him a little pat on the shoulder. Hey, thanks, buddy. Good job. Now, I, I played football. I've coached football. And, uh, you know, how can that happen? These aren't grid kids. I mean, these are good football. Those professionals. I mean, you think about to be a professional, you were the best player at your college. And if you made it to college, you were probably the best player your hometown ever produced. They probably named a gym after Roy Regals, where he came from. But Roy kind of had a bad Rose Bowl, became very famous. Um, how did that happen? Well, if you watch it, you could watch it a lot. He got bounced around there. There was kind of a scrum. He was trying to pick it up and run, and he got off balance. He got turned around. And when you lose your balance, you can lose your sense of direction, Right? And he thought he was making progress, he was running, he was moving, but he was doing it in the wrong direction. In fact, they lost the game. And he came out, of course, horrified. They, they, um, Georgia Tech scored a safety, went on to win the national championship, 8-7. to seven. Roy t was sitting on the bench at the half, obviously not feeling very well. And his coach asked him a really interesting question. Coach Act went right in his face and said, Roy, who are you? 
which shocked him because that's not the sort of question, you know, a coach would ask in that sort of situation. Usually it's got a lot more invective and a lot of spit flying. But the question was, is Roy Regals a guy that's off balance and an idiot? Is Roy Regals an all-American center, a guy that plays both sides of the ball and the best player his town had ever produced? That question, who are you, is the same question Paul is essentially asking the churches in Galatia, who are also off balance and going in the wrong direction and thinking they're doing great. The Galatian churches are patting themselves on the back for how well they're doing, and Paul is the guy on the sidelines jumping up and down saying, no, no, you're going the wrong way. And the question he asks the Galatian churches and us, who are you? And that's what we're going to take a look at today. Uh, the Galatian churches were going in the wrong direction. And by way of just a little bit of, uh, uh, if you want to call it, review, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, had preached in Galatia and was very close uh, both ethnically and historically and physically with the Galatian churches. And he hears that they're going in the wrong direction. And Paul is writing a letter to them to say, stop, stop, you're, stop. No, 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 no. You're going the wrong way in the way that Roy's coach was probably jumping up and down on the sidelines in the 1929 Rose Bowl. The overall message Paul has is this isn't about rules, guys. This isn't about what you do. It's about faith. It's not about following some religion with a bunch of do's and don'ts, which is what the Galatian churches were doing. It's about a relationship with Jesus. And Paul is constantly trying to bring them back to that. And so the message is sort of man, us, we should live by faith, not by law. And so Paul contrasts constantly through the book of Galatians. This is kind of the theme, that you live by faith. You walk by faith. You were justified by faith. Be sanctified by faith. And the Galatian churches were essentially saying, no, no, no. You're justified by the law. You're justified by what you do. And you're sanctified by keeping track of all the good works that you do. And the Galatian church was just like Roy Regals. They were running in the wrong direction. And they thought they were making great, great progress. But it turns out they weren't. Last couple weeks, we've discussed a little bit of the, the great timeline of history. And this will come up a lot, especially this time of year, is that here we are, and here's Jesus Christ. When he physically came as our... God on earth, here's where the Galatian book was written just in 49, just 50 years or so after that. Moses brought the law six, or roughly 1,600 years before that, and that was uh, a covenant that came, and it was what we call the conditional covenant, if you remember, that it's a, a two-party agreement, that if you do this, God would do that. And it was specific for the Jewish people in Israel, and it had to do with staying in the land. It did not have to do with um, the, the broader picture of how we're saved because God already did that before. Abraham had the promise, which was an unconditional covenant, that if you believe, you are saved. And that came way before the law. And so the law would not overturn that. And that's part of what Paul's talking about. And some of this is just basic logic because you look at the timeline of things happening and, and Remember, the law enslaves you because you can't just follow a little bit of the law. You have to follow all 613 precepts or else you're condemned. And, in fact, the book of James says that very clearly, for whoever keeps the whole law against stumbles on one point has been guilty of all. And that's why the law cannot save you because it's impossible to follow it. And in fact, it wasn't given for that purpose. It was given to show us how far we need the Savior. So the promise came first, the promise of justification by faith that we were saved, which leads to and is supposed to influence our sanctification, which is our daily, how we live our life and trying to be closer to God and be more like Jesus. And we look forward to the future where we will be glorified in our, our three tenses of salvation this book deals with a little bit of justification because that's the context, but it's mostly about this, the sanctification. And one of the points you're going to hear a lot today is Paul saying, live by faith because you were saved by faith. That should influence why would you live by the law if you were saved by faith? 
And that's the part of the argument that he's going through here, that Paul's trying to reach people. And this book has been very powerful throughout history of getting churches away from do's and don'ts, away from our little things that we like to say are right and wrong, and turning people more towards a relationship with Jesus. Luther, we always talk a little bit about at Christmas. Luther, this was his, the most important book about how the Holy Spirit led Luther to start the Protestant Reformation, which we're still dealing with today. It's a very, very powerful book. And we're going to look at, um, kind of cap our time before Christmas with uh, the start of, verse, or of chapter 4, which is actually more like the end of chapter 3 in a lot of ways. Let me read this to you. We'll pray, and then we'll kind of break this down a little bit. The central question that I want you to think about as we're talking about this is, who are you? Are you a son or are you a slave? Or to put it a different way, how are we to live? Are we to live as sons of God or slaves? This is Galatians 4, uh, verses 1 through 11. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time when you did not know God... You were slaves to those by which nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, be known by God, how is it that you turn back to the weak and worthless elemental things which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Holy Fathers, we come before you this morning to take a look at your word We just reflect, Father, on how great and how awesome and glorious, how holy you are. And we confess before you that as a church and as individuals, we are far from perfect, Father. We love each other and we love you uh, with many, many flaws. We thank you this morning, Father, for those of us that know you and that you know us, that your spirit is within us and that you can hear our prayers and that we don't act and we don't pray as the world does. But, Father, you give us this amazing gift of eternal life life with you and an understanding because of your spirit within us. This morning, we do ask your forgiveness for the things that we have done that have uh, not been of you, that have been sins against you. And Father, we do ask your spirit to teach us this morning from your word and that it would not be my words that people hear, but Father, your words given through your Holy Spirit into my heart, that your holy word, Father, would be illuminated by your spirit and each one of us would leave here closer to you and closer to one another than we are right now. We ask this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. Okay, let's break this down into four kind of bits here. And it's, it's basically a nice little timeline. Um, I had a little trouble actually studying this. There's a lot going on in this verse, and it jumps around a bit. But the basic story is this. He's going to talk about how we were saved, who we were before we knew Jesus, that we had sin. He talks about God sending his son to us, kind of nice for the Christmas season. And it talks about how we are now and how we're supposed to live, why we're different. And the question is, how are you living? Are you living as a slave to the law, to your behavior, or are you living as an heir of God, living by faith, by spirit, not by sight? And once you kind of get that in there, it's a nice little timeline of our, our personal story of we were not known by God, we got something happened, God saved us, and now we live a different way. And so, as we take a look at that, kind of keep that in mind, or we were saved by faith, don't try to be sanctified by anything other than faith. Because human nature, we want to turn it into rules. We want to turn it into things you do and things you don't do, and if you do that, that's wrong. Might be in your heart, but we'll get into that just a little bit. 
Um, the first little bit I want to look at is the first three verses, and then I'm going to add verse 8 into that. So those are the past tense verses. Those are the times when, if you're following notes now, it's what we used to be. So if we look at these kind of as the past, um, Paul's making an analogy or an illustration drawing a parallel between who we were is similar to when you're under the law, before you're saved, is very similar to being a child in a family in the time of Rome, where in 49 AD, children were taught what he called the elemental things. That's the basics Mosaic law, like Sunday school in the Moses law covenant time. Very simple, very plain, very uh, legalistic. And we were like slaves to that. And then he said it's kind of like being the child who uh, is an heir, but the managers haven't set the time. What that meant by that is in the Roman customs, if you, had, you were a landed family, you had money family, we talked about they had tutors. And we discussed the tutor was the live-in nanny for all kinds of instruction. But the father did not make you an heir until there was a ceremony. Just because you were born into the family did not mean you were going to be the heir. And so when people became adults, the father of the family would at some point decide, yep, my kid is ready to take over the family business, the family land, whatever it is, and there would be a ceremony where the child was formally declared to be an adult and to be the heir. And it was a big deal. It was a very, very big deal in Roman customs, and the tutor was no longer needed. Paul is saying this is a lot like what it was to be a slave to the law. You weren't known by God, and you were like, yes, you could be an heir, but you have not been declared the heir because God does not recognize you. You have not put your faith in God. And for Paul to remind this to the Galatian churches, they got that because the Jewish customs of the time that you go from child to heir, oh, yeah, it is kind of like that. Paul's saying before Jesus came or before we accepted Christ, we were slaves. We were like the heir that had no, no hope of the future of that. We weren't known by God. Think about um, the prodigal son. Most of us know that story. The son left as a child, went off and had his wild times, blew his money and everything. But when he came back, the father declared him to be the heir. He ran out with great joy to this wayward, stupid kid, but he put the robe on him, he gave him the ring, he made him heir. And that was the sign of the great love of the father for the son who screws up. That would clue the Galatians, oh yeah, that makes sense. That kid, even though he didn't deserve it, was made heir. And he wasn't, no longer, once you're heir, you're not taught by the tutor. You're not educated with these basic legalistic Jewish law. That's the elemental things of the world that goes through that. So, verse 8, when you did not know God, he's just kind of repeating the idea. Um, not knowing God would actually could be translated as not approved by God. Because God is the one who declares us righteous, saves us, not us, not something that we do. So, who are you? Are you someone who is saved by certain practices, by certain things you did or did not do, by keeping track of scores? No, you were saved by faith. You were saved like an heir. The Father appoints you, not because of something you did. And that's the first bit there, which takes us to the next. This is... Um, a lot of stuff right here. Two verses, but uh, three really main big points. And the first one is you might think about, uh, it's a Christmas message, really, as God had a plan for the universe, and we're at the heart of it. When we were created, we had a flaw. We acted out. Adam sinned, and that sin got passed into our DNA, and all of us can't fight it. We're sinners. We try not to, but we are. And the only way to fix that was for God to send his son. And that's all of human history can be defined just by what I just said there. So the first thing to look at in this, when the fullness of time came, what was the timing? Why? What's that mean, the fullness of time? Well, here it is. Jesus came 400 years after the last prophet spoke. There was a great silence for 400 years. People were very interested to hear that. And uh, David Levy, who's a, a writer, pointed out the fullness of time, kind of making it specific, had to do with three things. One was religion. Uh, the Jewish church was the dominant church throughout Israel, but not throughout Rome. But the idols were fading even in Rome. 
uh, idolatry had kind of been wiped out in Israel. The people, the Jewish culture had even infected, if you will, uh, non-Jews, and people were kind of expecting a Messiah. That was talked about. That was a, there was fertile ground for people to discuss a Messiah at that time religiously. Legally, the Romans were in control of most of the Mediterranean area, and they had what was called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. There was a law, and there was relative freedom from war during that time, but the Romans granted, in very limited fashion, freedom of speech and freedom of religion, that as long as you didn't mess and cause riots, you could kind of believe what you wanted to believe, which allowed the church to spread. And then culturally, the Greek language was the trade language at the time, and everybody spoke Greek, perhaps not well, but when you could use a one language that would spread across all these different cultures and all the Roman Empire, all the way from England down into mid-Africa and pretty far west to the ocean and pretty far east into Asia, one language was spoken when the Messiah would come and it would spread by writing the truth and what's going on in the early, the original writings of the Bible, it was a perfect time in history for this to take place. So the fullness of time, God knows what he's doing. He organized it this way so that the Messiah came at just the right time. Secondly, it talks about the qualities of our Savior. And if you're taking notes, these are kind of listed out there. You've got a little spot to write it. But the first quality of our Savior is he was fully God. Jesus Christ is God the Son, part of the Trinity, part of the three-part Godhead, and he's 100% the creator God and 100% God. But the second quality is Jesus was also born fully man. He was born of a woman. He came into this earth just like you and I did. He was fully God and yet fully man. And the term we use for that is Emmanuel, God with us. And it's one of those things that's hard to get your head around. That how can somebody be fully God and yet fully man at the same time? But the important part for what Paul's, the argument he's making, is being born as a human, he was under the law. He was born under the law, and therefore he had to follow the law. But unlike every other person throughout all of history, Christ was able to follow the law perfectly. Matthew 5, 7. Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. The only way for our sin to be solved, if you will, was for a perfect Savior to hang on a cross, take our sin, and die, and that would fix it. That would account for it. It had to be perfect, though. Jesus could not be imperfect and still be the Savior. And that's why he fulfilled prophecy, and that's why there's a lot of prophecy related to the perfection of the, uh, the, our Savior. And it's a parallel to the old Passover feast. The lambs for slaughter had to be unblemished. It's the, that's the image, even in Passover, that aimed, foreshadowed, if you will. And lastly, this verse talks about uh, the victory. Christ's victory is in you and I. We talk about conquering death. That's our death. We were adopted as sons, the adoption as sons, through Christ, his victory. And you could translate that, and depending on your Bible, it might not say adoption. It might say full rights as sons, or it might say rightful heritage. But maybe a better way to do that is the adoption as children into a royal family. That, again, you think of the Roman custom, the father would declare somebody to be heir when they were, their time was right. Paul's saying, when we're saved, we are adopted legally as heirs into God's family. And that word adoption is very rare in the New Testament. And those odd words, always, you want to pay attention to that. It's a significant word. And it's God, when he justified us, God does the justifying. He's declaring us to be a legal heir legally a member of his family, and that's irrevocable. That cannot be changed. And when God does that, it's permanent. Permanent. And Paul's going to transition from this verse where he's reminding us that we were justified by God's action should influence our sanctification, our daily walk, which is who we are now, which is verses 6 and 7. So keep in mind the question, who are you? Are you a slave or are you a son? 
How are you walking as a slave or as a son? Are you depending on rules and do's and don'ts to be righteous? Or are you depending on faith? Paul makes it very clear in this argument, spoiler alert, you are to live as a son, in fact. You are not to live as a slave. You are a son. It's not that you should act like it. You are. Now, as I've said son, what, 50, 60 times, I've been kind of watching women in the crowd. Because as I keep saying son, 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 you might be thinking to yourself, wait a second, what about daughters? Well, let me give you the breakdown of the word son. Son is an important term. And son, uh, you have to make a little bit of, it took a little bit of work here. But if you get into Strong's Concordance, which is how they define words in the Bible, and you get the right context, and then you take a look at um, paralleling Galatians 3, verse 28, which is all of us are equal. There is no Jew, there is no Gentile, man, woman. Okay, what you get is, here's what son is. Son is a position, and it's gender neutral. The term is son, that's how it's translated, but it doesn't mean male. It means the position of being in the family, part of the family. So you can read that as the official legal son and or daughter. Okay? That's a little cumbersome, so they have this Greek, they make a nice clean term. The Greeks would understand that. It didn't mean male, but we've kind of overlaid our own culture on that a little bit. So when we see son, it appears four times in this verse, um, or in this passage, um, he's writing to all of us equally. And that's important because there are cultures where that's not recognized. But maybe, brethren, you can look it up yourself, and I encourage you to do so. The Bible's very clear. That means position, and it's male and female together. And what it means is having the same nature as the father, being like the father, being legally adopted into the family, sharing the same character as the father. It's used here to remind us that you've been adopted by the father. The father chose you, and you are 100% legally part of the family. The Holy Spirit enters you at justification. When you believe, the Holy Spirit enters you, and that is your true character. That's who you really are, is through Christ, through the indwelling of the Spirit, and you're redeemed, and you're regenerated, and you're a new person. And that makes you a new child of the royal family. You are permanently placed in adoption, and that wasn't your decision, brothers and sisters. That was God's decision. You can work and sin as hard as you want to. You cannot lose your adoption as a son. Your position is sealed permanently. Ephesians 1. Having also believed, you were sealed with him in the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of ours inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Give you another one, though, because I think this is important. Romans 8, right in the middle. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs. Heirs also, heirs of God fellow heirs with Christ. Abba Father showed up in the passage in Romans, shows up right here. Might miss this culturally a little bit. Abba is not a Swedish band. Not my favorite. Um, It's an Aramaic word. And Abba is the closest we can come to his daddy or papa. It's an intimate term, and it doesn't mean literally you cry out, Abba, Father, you might, but it's when you have a sense of closeness with God, when you've been saved, at some point you will sense, you will feel a closeness with Him. That is your heart crying out, an intimate term for God. Paul uses, culturally it makes sense, Abba, Father, it's this daddy, this closeness, but for you it might be something else. But what it is, it's just, it's different than the awesome name of God, the Jehovah. It's the intimate term. It's the close term. It's the daddy. 
um, or whatever you call your, your father in a close way. It might be father, it might be daddy. Um, not necessarily Abba, but it's a genuine term, and it's genuine when it comes from your heart. And that's the confirmation, the indwelling of the Spirit, that you are saved, that you have been adopted as when you have that. It's not just that it has nothing to assign gifts. Or, you have the Holy Spirit in you, and it's the Holy Spirit that allows us to worship in spirit and truth that gives us the feelings we have that colors our world to where we look at God the Father as not a giant rule giver and giving us do's and don'ts and giving us laws and things we have to follow, but the Father we have relationship with because of his Son saving us. It's not a religion we practice, brothers and sisters. It is a relationship that we struggle with. That is the core of who we are as a church and as believers is the relationship. So, just the short two verses, it talks about you are a son or daughter, part of the family. It talks about your position and your right to the inheritance. It talks about that you have a Holy Spirit that gives confirmation when you cry out, when you have the feeling that you're close to your father. And it talks about the privileges you have. And in fact, there are six privileges, at least, that we can go through here on your notes or just listening that contrasts slave and son or son and daughter. So first off, the son is born into the family by birth. Slaves are not. We're born into the family when the Holy Spirit enters us. That's how you get the term born again some people use. We're regenerated, a new person. We're part of the family. Secondly, the child, the son or daughter, shares the father's character, the father's nature. The slave does not. The slave merely follows the rules that the master sets out. Third, the son has a father, the slave has a master. If you're a slave to the law, if you are following the law, your relationship with God the Father is different. You're trying to avoid penalties. It's not the same as knowing you're loved and you're comforted and you're part of the family. In fact, the fourth one, the son or daughter obeys the parent out of love. It's a response. It's not a, I have to do it, it's my duty, or you're scared of being punished. That's the great difference between religion and relationship. There's not a fear in a real Christian church that's following the Bible. This is very clear. The son will inherit the riches, all of it. The slave will be paid its wage. Think about the difference there. God is your father. God has the riches of everything, and you are heirs to that. Or you can receive your wage right now. The son will be disciplined with grace. The slave will be disciplined by the law. It's a pretty amazing contrast, isn't it? And Paul's saying, and it kind of applies to us. We all can get being justified by faith, but we want to be sanctified by following rules. And as we've studied before, that don't make no sense. If you're justified by faith, why would you be sanctified by anything other than faith? I want to give you one more verse to just hammer this home because it's a great verse. Titus chapter 3. He, God, saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. God saved us not because of our deeds, which may have been done for all the right reasons, but God saved us because of his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is the truth that we should be living by. That's where we should put our faith, our trust, and what we depend on for daily sanctification. But sanctification is hard. It's not easy. And the Galatian church struggled with it, and so do we. So this book is about justification by faith, but it's a lot about being sanctified by faith. And if you were justified as a son, live like a son. The son, we have confirmation by the Spirit, live like it. And here, the, the, Paul's basically calling out the Galatian church, trying to tell them to wake up. Paul is the coach on the sideline, and the Galatian church is ro wrong way regals, going down the field the wrong way, patting himself on the back the whole time. 
and the Galatian church. They're pretty proud, and we'll get into that real quick. But he's shouting at them, wake up! I fear for you. Take a look at verse 11. How would you feel if an apostle of God, somebody who witnessed Jesus Christ, was talking to you and said that? If Gary said that to us, if a pastor in your past was saying that to you, I I fear that I may have labored over you in vain. That is a cold, hard, hurting statement that comes from Paul's heart trying to wake up this church. Should catch our attention. And what he's talking about here is our sin nature. Backsliding, I think, is a good term for it, but habits. And the elemental thing shows up again, that, that basic Jewish law following it. And um, your translation, I think NIV calls it miserable principles. No one wants to follow the law and be about do's and don'ts. Um, it's a legalistic way of living, and the Galatians have been slaves to that. And then he mentions this other stuff on backsliding. You observe days and months and seasons and years. That we can kind of pass over because we don't get that culturally. But in Jewish culture, they had many, many traditions that were very important. You lit a certain candle at a certain time. You did this and then this and then this. And that was what they were depending on to know that they were righteous. And uh, one example of the, the months was a lunar festival. That's the month. They had holidays for the seasons. They had special days. And they were all things that they had to do as to be a believer. They said to be a good Christian, you have to follow these traditions. And they were all the Jewish traditions. And they were worthless. They were meaningless. They were keeping them off balance and keeping them running the wrong way. And they were thumping their chest while they were doing it. It wasn't about Jesus. They were acting like slaves. Now, why would you do that? Why would you live in a way that doesn't make sense? Why would you, if you know you're a Christian, why would you do that? Well, it kind of comes down to what I'll call the three F's. Okay? The three F's. The flesh, the vanity. I couldn't find an... You know, you've got to have alliteration, and sometimes, you know, ego and vanity, they couldn't find an F. I used a couple of those sources. And the last one's the fear. So the flesh, the vanity, and the fear. And just say vanity with a F in it. So here, first, van, or, uh, the flesh. We love to measure things. We love, human nature loves to measure things. And it's competition. And... I like that, and I love competition, but man, it can screw you up in the spiritual realm, which is more important than any other realm we have. I'm very guilty of this. I track, like, workouts. I like to get points. I give myself a gold star. I pat myself on the back. I got 12 points of workouts in this weekend. Yeah. And um, why not do that with prayers, right? Why not quantify our prayer life? Why not keep track of our giving and how much more I've given than you've given and how much uh, less I've given than this guy that I look up to? Oh, I'm terrible. And all of a sudden, we start quantifying it and you start thinking, wow, I'm, I'm quite a Christian, really, aren't I? And you look like an idiot. You're wrong way regals when you start thinking that way because it says very clearly in the Bible in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous. No, not even one. Family, we compete in a lot of things and that can be very good but not spiritually. Secondly, our ego, our vanity, loves the law. Because when we start counting things, it's because we want to have more than somebody else. Right? That makes us feel good about ourselves. It's pride. And all of a sudden, you'll find yourself comparing yourself to somebody else, and you'll be talking down on somebody. You'll be judging them. Or you'll think it's positive, and you're just talking down about another church. Oh, isn't that sad that they don't do the right things? They don't observe the way we do. They're not as serious. They, oh, those guys, they allow dancing in their church. How terrible. Okay, it's all the stuff. You can go back in time. I'm sure there were people in the 1940s and 50s, well, not the 40s here, but in the 50s here, that dancing, movies, novels, gambling, smoking, I don't care what it is. You'll come up with ways to separate yourself and show that you have the real faith and those people don't, and so I'm better and I feel good about myself. And that goes very subtly into judgment, and that's how cults get started, and that's how we drive people out of the church. We've turned a relationship into a religion with do's and don'ts because it appeals to our vanity. It appeals to our pride. 
if you have more than one kid, imagine your kids fighting with each other about who is loved by the parent more. If you're the parent, how do you respond to that? That's pretty screwed up, right? And kind of ridiculous. How do you think God responds to us when we're trying to judge one another and we're saying, setting ourselves above somebody? Or the reverse is true. We put ourselves below. Oh, I'm no good because I don't do all the things this person does. Or that church. They're so much better than us. Humility can be just as big of a sin as pride because you're not looking, you're comparing yourself to somebody else. And it's ugly. I've got to believe God just thinks that's ugly. And a lot of the motive for this is the last F, fear. We're called to walk by faith, not by sight. But what do we see? We see stuff around us. Am I doing enough? Am I a good Christian? Am I, really a, am I really a believer? Am I really holy? Am I doing what God wants me to do? And we have fear. That question's hard to answer sometimes. And so, as a response to that, we do something physical that we can see. Well, I will give extra. Ah, ah I feel better about myself now. Now I'm holy. I will pray a certain way. I will follow certain traditions. I will observe communion a certain way. And I'll turn it into a tradition. I'll turn it into something I have to do. And then I know I feel good about myself. I have more confidence because of something I see. Um, I have a job, and I've had, always had jobs that dealt with people. And that can be very frustrating because at the end of the day, did you do anything? Right? So what I like to do when I get off work, I like to mow a lawn. It's so relaxing. You know why? Because I push the mower and I look back. Something got done. Isn't that great? I see the response. We want to, as Christians, see the results of our work. And it's spiritual. It's not something you see. It's something you are. It's not what you do. It's what you believe. It's where you place your faith. It's trust. And sometimes the things we try to do are worthless. We get twisted around. Our fear, our ego, our flesh gets us off balance. And all of a sudden we're running the wrong way. And when we do that, we usually are, you know, we're all proud about it. The way wrong way Regals was proud, running down the field, going the wrong way. So we need to keep our human nature, our flesh, our vanity, and our fear in check. So that we depend on God, not on our works. To be sanctified by faith not by sight. And then Paul ends with trying to really call these guys back. And so, as an elder team, the group of elders in this church, we have a lot of checks to make sure we don't run the wrong way. We have doctrinal statements. We have statements of faith. We meet and we share all those things with all of you because it's important that we do this all together, that we check one another And I'll come back to that in the application. How we do church, we want to be focused on grace and on faith, not on our behavior, not on the things that we do or do not do. Which comes back to our original question. Who are you? A son or a slave? What are you depending on for your walk? The things you do? The rules you follow? The things you don't do? Are you depending on your relationship with Christ? Well, we're called, we're instructed to walk by faith. The same way we're justified. How do we apply this now? What do you do? You've listened to this. I've studied this for a long time now. And I'll give you my takeaways, which, again, these are my takeaways. These aren't holy. These are what I've come up with. You need to come up with your own. I'll tell you mine because maybe it stimulates your thinking, but don't follow me blindly on this by any means because you will get messed up. But for me, how to keep walking as an heir? How to keep walking as a son or a daughter? Well, my two, which I give to you free with the price of admission this morning, is this. First off, diffuse the negative trigger. And then the second one is lifeguard one another. So there's going to be a thing about relationships. For me, I don't know what your trigger is. Negative triggers. Things that something happens and it triggers negativity. For me, it's anger. A shopping cart left out in the parking lot at Safeway. I see it. I think, criminy. 
how, it's going to hit a car that's, that, that person has no regard for anybody else. They're lazy. They're stupid. They probably kicked the dog. They probably voted for Pat Paulson in the last election. Dang that. And I've completely judged this person. I don't even know, right? I got tailgated the other day, coming up the hill from work. End of the day, I've been a long day at work. I'm, com- I'm driving a city rig. I've got lights all over. It's got a government plates on. This guy's tailgating. He's right on. And I'm right at the verge of brake checking this guy, right? And I'm fired up, and they turn off at the hospital. They weren't tailgating me, probably. They were, on, they were rushed to get to the hospital. And I was just, oh, how dare me get all fired up and start to judge somebody. So my trigger is anger. Anger will take me into a judgmental role. When I start judging people, I've given up any hope I have of sharing the gospel with that person. And so my diffusing mechanism is when I get that, when I see the guy blocking the left-hand lane on the freeway or whatever the stupid thing I'm going to get worried about, I think about having the God space conversation with that person. I reflect on that book and I think about how am I going to a chance to talk to this person? Am I really going to try to you know, chew them out and give them a piece of my mind? That's not going to lead to a good... That's not going to lead... I'm not going to teach that person anything. I'm going to be another judgmental Christian to that person. Your anger, your, it might not be anger for you. It might be lack of confidence. It might be depression. It might, whatever the negative thing is that gets triggered and you have to find ways to, to diffuse that. And I'm talking like, oh, I've got this down, right? No problem. I guarantee you on my way home from church, something will happen. I'll be, you know, I'll be right back. It's a daily struggle. And I like to think over time I'll get a little better at it. But all of us are going to struggle with that. Whatever your negative thing is, find a way to diffuse it. The second one is you've got to have relationships. And you have to have relationships where you can lifeguard one another, where you can be vigilant. You might have heard the phrase, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. It gets attributed to Thomas Jefferson. That's not true, as it turns out. That's a mistaken quote. It's something T.J. would have said. But the quote actually comes from an Irish lawyer. Same timeline as Jefferson. And it's a spiritual quote that gets put into politics. But listen to the original spiritual quote. The condition upon which God hath given liberty to man is eternal vigilance. And the guy's not talking about liberty in a political sense. He's talking about liberty as freedom in Christ as a believer. Because, again, if it's about a relationship, it's not about do's and don'ts. Now, personally, I think having do's and don'ts for yourself that's very valuable. That's being disciplined. That leads to good things. The problem is when I say I look at Penny and say, well, Penny needs to do the same things I'm doing and not do the same things I don't do. It's when we take it outside of ourselves, we get off. And that's why we need to have a lifeguard. We need to have people around us that are close to us that will say, Crago, you're being an idiot. Calm down. Now, I married a person that does that really well, and if you have a 16-year-old in your house, they're excellent at pointing out if you've ever gone overboard or do something wrong. It's a wonderful thing to have. In all seriousness, it really is good. But I think at work you need to have a lifeguard, and in church you have to have about 12. All right? It is too easy for the flesh to get involved in this, and we can get off. And if you have a life group, if you have a close family, if you've got friends or you have neighbors, whatever it is, they keep you from stepping out and maybe helping you diffuse those triggers or getting into the judgment. And by the way, your role is to lifeguard others, to be the person that will intercede, to say, whoa, 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 what's going on here? You know, Ralph and Barb are doing the angel tree, and we're going to celebrate that here at the end of the day and pray over the, the gifts. But did Ralph or Barb ever tell us, well, you have to do this to be a good Christian? No, but that can happen, right? We need to watch over each other to make sure we don't do that. We don't trust in faith, or we do trust in faith. We don't trust on our works, which brings us back to our boy Roy. So Roy was at halftime, if you'll remember, had run the wrong way on film, right? Halftime. Coach asked him, who are you? And he didn't say, are you a son or a slave? But it sure is a very similar principle. Are you the all-American? Are you the moron? Now, Roy was pretty inconsolable at halftime. But he went back out and played. He had a career game, set two school records in the second half. 
That was his junior year. His senior year, he was the team captain. Uh, he led Cal to victory, and they was the Pac-8 at that time. Uh, he won several awards. He was put in the Rose Bowl Hall of Fame. He was put in the Cal Berkeley Hall of Fame. He graduated, was married, became a teacher and a football coach, and became a motivational speaker on the side about overcoming adversity. Roy Regals, for the rest of his life, would peruse the news every week. And when he read about a player who had gone the wrong way, he wrote him a letter personally. He wrote 4,500 and some letters. This is a common thing in football players. And most of you say, well, they're football players. What do you expect, right? But Roy Regals turned a horrible thing into kind of a strength. And yeah, he got kind of famous for some stuff like this. But I think it's a good message for how to close on this. To live our lives, not the Roy Regals that got bounced around on the line and went the wrong way, off balance. But the Roy Regals that came back in the second half. The Roy Regals that turned that into a strength in his life and reached out to others and helped them through times. Who are you, really? And live your life that way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, close out this time of instruction. You instructing us from your word. We give thanks to you for your word in a language we understand and in multiple copies and translations that uh, that's a blessing that very few people receive these days, Lord. We give thanks to you that we can meet in freedom from persecution or from government control. And we give thanks to you for that and the people that you've used, the men and women over generations to establish a nation that allows us to, to worship in freedom and to establish this church where we have the benefits of a building and enjoying all of those that have gone before us to teach us. Father, we give thanks to those that are in the armed services, locally, in the emergency services that protect us and watch over us so that we can have the benefits of sitting in a nice church and enjoying your word. And Father, we now go to a time of worship of you. And Father, I just pray for each one of us this morning that our worship of you would be a response to both what you've done for us in our lives, uh, a response to all the blessings you've given us, but more importantly, Father, it would be a response to this passage that we would worship you as sons and daughters, as heirs of part of your family, not as uh, attendants or uh, simply people that are here out of a sense of duty. We're here because we love you, Father. And that's how we want to worship you today. And we ask this by the name of your Son, who is our perfect Savior. Amen.